This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So uh, let's, let's begin. And I want us to freshly cherish uh, how God works and how his kingdom is fashioned. The splashing of beautiful feet. Uh, a ripple uh, effect is a, it's, an, it's an understood concept that when you put a little drop of pebble in a pond, it creates what's known as a ripple and it goes out in a circle. And when you splash in the waters of this earth, it has a, an amazing impact. And Many of us have a challenge, and I don't know how many of you are wired like me. I've only lived one life. I've only been one person. I'm not sure how everyone else feels on other issues, but when it comes to my life, I know I have one life to live, and I desire it to be significant. It's a a bait for me, and that's the call to significance, and men definitely struggle with that, and that's what midlife crisis is. You begin to look back, and you're like, what has my life even done? What has it accomplished? It's almost over. It's like at least halfway, and like, what have I done? Which leads to a guy buying a boat. You know, I don't know how all that works, but uh, we have a desire, and so I'm speaking as Eric Ludy, but I'm also trying to get into your skin. We desire, when we come in contact with Jesus Christ and we become familiar with the gospel, We want to do, see if I can enunciate it this way, to do big things for Jesus. We want our life to matter. We don't want to be a little pebble. We want to be a boulder that goes, splashes in the waters of this life and causes not just a ripple, but a wave effect. And I would like us to reset how we think, because, and I don't know if it's the American culture, maybe it's just humanity. I'm not exactly sure why we fall for the bait that we have to be something special in the world's eyes to make a significant impact for the kingdom of heaven. It's like, does the world think I did something great? Because unless the world thinks I did something great, then maybe I didn't do something great. Or maybe there's a book written about me, and then that means I did something great. I still remember uh, the, the statements uh, of remember Buzz Lightyear, Tim Allen. Uh, Tim Allen had the number one movie in America, and I want to say it was uh, Santa Claus. It could have been Toy Story. I'm not sure which one it was. He had the number one TV show at the time, Home Improvement. This is all simultaneous. He had the number one selling book in the New York Times bestseller list, all simultaneous. This is like the ultimate achievement. And he went into deep depression and was suicidal. What? Wait, isn't that what we're all after? He recognized that there was no pot at the end of that rainbow. He was waiting for something. He was trying to find something, but it wasn't there. We as Christians have to recalibrate our entire framework of how we go about living this life. I want to make a difference for Jesus Christ. I don't want to just be popular, have a you know, best-selling book and have a, be in a movie, you know, all these different desires that are intrinsic within many of us. But I desire to do something for Jesus that counts, that actually matters for eternity. 
And I want to give you a little secret of how that works today. And it's going to be a little different than what you expect, because some of you are like, so, so I need to get a stage, and then I need a microphone, and then I'm going to speak really loud. And yet that's not exactly the model of the kingdom of heaven and how it's established on this earth, as you will see. So I call this the splashing of beautiful feet. It's sort of fun having his little feet, which the idea of feet in the Bible is, is rather unique and intriguing because we see that all things are under Christ's feet. Feet uh, to the Jew would be a symbol of authority. And yet we also know that the way that this body is designed by God to get from here to there is with these feet. And so we take the authority of God's message with these feet out and They're known as beautiful feats. When this body is decidedly determined to say, I give my life to you, Jesus, you take this body and you carry it on these feet into this world with your message. Those are called beautiful feet. The most beautiful feet of all were Jesus Christ. He came down and he modeled how a man in the body like ours ought to work. Though he was God, he also showed how a man ought to live and how beautiful his feet should be. And we are the body of Christ. We have the feet of Christ. So those beautiful feet are supposed to be ours. So his little feet, that's actually your tale to tell right there. You're going back to your homeland with some beautiful feet on you. And right now they're still little, though some of you are getting bigger than you should in 10 months. You're carrying back the gospel of Jesus Christ to your homeland. So when you splash with those beautiful feet, it creates a ripple. And how is it? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The Edward Ripple. Technically, the guy's name isn't Edward Ripple, uh, but this is the Edward Ripple. Now, I've hesitated to ever use this illustration because I grew up and I heard it multiple times. And when you've heard an illustration multiple times, you feel like everyone has heard it. And so as a result, and I have tons of illustrations that I've never used in church for that exact reason. I do not want to just borrow someone else's illustration. It just happens to be a really good one. And so when I got down to the brass tacks of this message, it's like, well, maybe there's people that don't know it. I mean, that's possible. Even if you do know it, it's just the meditation that's significant here. The Edward Ripple. So we have Edward Kimball, who looks like he's almost off the page there uh, on our keynote. And Edward Kimball wasn't anything dramatic. He probably desired to make a big impact on this world just like you and just like me. And he was a Sunday school teacher. That was his big role. And so he had a whole bunch of incorrigible kids in his class. He probably, I remember teaching a Civil War class of, I don't know how old they were, eight to ten-year-olds. And every mom, like in the whole class, came up to me privately and said, I just want you to know that my son has ADHD. Uh, And so if he's a little wild in class, you'll at least know why. And then the next mom, I just want you to know that if, you know, little Joey is a little wild, that he has ADHD. It's like the ADHD generation. So I don't know if Edward Ripple had a whole class full of ADHD, but that's the way it sounds from the testimony. In other words, it was a class that didn't seem to be catching on very well. But Edward, Rip- Edward Ripple, that wasn't his name. Edward Kimball, it's close. Edward Kimball had a heart to share Jesus with these boys. It's that simple. That's where it started. Now, what I'm going to show you is the little things. Remember, I'm modeling something for you in and through this story. That when we want to do something big, we oftentimes think we have to have a big stage. 
instead of following what God has burdened us to do. Edward Kimball had a burden for little boys. And so he said, I'll take that job as a Sunday school teacher. And there was one little boy that was really obnoxious. Uh, I don't know if he went by D.L. back then. But D.L. wasn't too interested in the gospel. And I I think he was older than 8 to 10. I don't remember how old uh, his class was, but I'm guessing 13 to 15-year-olds, somewhere in there. And uh, so Edward Kimball is actually the one responsible for leading D.L. Moody to Jesus Christ. I want to read you the story. It's actually what I'll call the conversion of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, was eight, when 18 years of age, was a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. His Sunday school teacher was Mr. Kimball, and he had set his heart on winning the young man for Christ. After praying about the matter, he arranged to visit him at the boot store. I was determined, to use his own words, to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to Holton's boot store. Have you ever had these moments in your life where you're burdened for something very specific? Now, it's an 18-year-old punk kid. Okay, the world doesn't care about what you're doing, but you're burdened. In your private thoughts as you're praying that morning, you're like, I need to go after that boy. Okay, now the world may not take notice of this. It's a little thing, and that's what I want to emphasize today. It's a little thing. It's a little person. But you have a burden, and as a result, when you follow that burden, what happens? When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to just go, to, to go in just then during business hours. I thought my call might embarrass the boy, and that, and that when I went away, the other clerks would ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. Haven't you had those thoughts too as you're thinking of doing this thing? It's not even that big, but you have a thousand reasons why maybe you shouldn't do it. Right as you get to the door even, you second guess yourself. Why? Well, I don't know. I, you ever had that? I mean, I have had it so many times. It's like, I'm, I'm glad I can't remember all the illustrations. Otherwise, we'd be here a long time. That's like it tends most of us in our stages of obedience. When we're learning to heed what God is asking us to do, and there's small things They're little diddly squat things, but they're not so diddly squat. They actually matter. That's what I want you to take note of. The small things that we have a tendency to dismiss actually matter. In the meantime, I had passed the store, and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it and to have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder... I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could Mr. Moody tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. And there in the back of that store in Boston, D.O. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ. It was a little thing. It was a man who was burdened, who even second-guessed himself, but instead he said, I'm going to just do it. And he did it. And he tended to that little thing, and that little thing led to one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody led a man named Wilbur Chapman, Dr. Wilbur Chapman, mind you, uh, to the Lord, And it changed Wilbur Chapman's life. And Wilbur Chapman became a famous evangelist the world over. And I have the conversion of Wilbur Chapman here. And I thought this would be encouraging. I put this in just because there's a lot of you in here 
you struggle with the assurance of salvation. It's not something I've struggled with. It's like, hey, I know what the scriptures say. I believe it. Therefore, I'm secure in Christ's love and grace and his salvation. However, listen to how D.L. Moody led uh, Dr. Wilbur Chapman to the Lord. Dr. Wilbur Chapman, the famous evangelist who preached in many lands, thus relates how he was born again. When the great evangelist D.L. Moody called for an after meeting, I was one of the first to enter the room. And to my great joy, Mr. Moody came and sat down beside me. I confess that I was not quite sure that I was saved. He handed me his open Bible and asked me to read John 5, 24. And trembling with emotion, I read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He said to me, Do you believe this? I answered, Certainly, he said. Are you a Christian? I replied, Well, sometimes I think I am, and again I am fearful. Read it again, he said. Then he repeated his two questions that I had to answer as before. Then Mr. Moody inquired, Whom are you doubting? And then it all came to me with a startling suddenness. Read it again, said Moody. And for the third time he asked, Do you believe it? I said, Yes, indeed I do. Well, are you a Christian? And I answered, Yes, Mr. Moody, I am. From that day to this, I have never questioned my acceptance with God. You see... A minister of the gospel isn't measured by just what he says on the stage and how big his crowds are. That's how most of us default to esteeming a man. However, I esteem Mr. Moody for this. In other words, that he's willing to wrestle for the individual soul as opposed to just trying to do big things. Instead, he invested into the little and as a result, did a big thing. You follow me? I'm planting the seeds for where I'm going with this message. In other words, what looks like a small thing in the back room of a church is actually a big thing because it is changing an individual life and an individual life is changed when we are willing to focus on it as if it is big. So Wilbur Chapman was the one that led Billy Sunday to the Lord. Billy Sunday was a baseball player that when he found Jesus, after hearing Dr. Wilbur Chapman preach the gospel, left his baseball career and became a preacher, one of the most famous preachers of all time. In fact, one of my memories, my, my granddad, Ludie, didn't give compliments very often. And so I, in fact, I can remember one, okay? Just, I'm cutting down to the chase here. He came and wasn't too excited, but he was going to hear his grandson speak. He sort of got drug into it, and he didn't have probably a very high opinion. You know, he was old school, and he remembers, I mean, he used to sit under Billy Sunday. And so he's thinking, modern day preaching. <laughs> and so somehow he got conned into being in the audience that day. And I got done, and he was silent, and, and I, he couldn't talk very loud because his hearing aids, he didn't know the volume. And he, he said, it reminded me of Billy Sunday. It's the one compliment I got from my granddad, and I've held on to it. And as a result, I'm very happy to have this come up on the screen. It reminds me of it. <laughs> Billy Sunday led a man named Mordecai Ham to the Lord. And Mordecai Ham, at one of his outdoor uh, evangelistic crusades, led Billy Graham to the Lord. 
This isn't to say that Billy Graham is bigger than all the others. It's just to show the progression of a little thing. Billy Graham, it is estimated, spoke to over 2.2 billion people about the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean either directly. It could have been over radio, but that's the estimation of how many people he reached for the gospel. Now, there could be a lot of different, different opinions on Billy Graham in this room. When you have a whole bunch of conservatives, you have all sorts of funny things that come out when it comes to this man. Well, one thing you know, he stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ in his generation. Matthew 13, Jesus speaking. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now, a mustard seed is an extremely small seed. Again, this is an illustration I grew up with, so it's like I hesitate to even use the scripture. It's like we all know a mustard seed story. We've all heard the illustration. However, hear it in light of what I'm talking about today. The kingdom of heaven specializes in little things. Follow me? It specializes in little things. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Are you taking little things and investing them? Which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What we would oftentimes overlook because it's the least of all the seeds, it's the smallest. It's like, eh. However, when we choose to invest that, to plant that, we see an end result which is much bigger than any other seed. The Peggy Ripple. Her name is not Peggy Ripple. Sounds like an ice cream, doesn't it? Peggy Covell is really what this one is about. However, I'm going to go back before Peggy Covell to Jim and Sharma Covell. Jim and Sharma Covell, who are the parents of Peggy Covell, who I'm about to talk to you about, were Christians that gave their life to share Jesus with the world. And they felt the calling to go to Japan to share the gospel. Japan was a beleaguered country, uh, and, uh, but growing more and more powerful, and they, they began to recognize it. This is before World War II. And it was needing a compass. Its compass was the emperor, and the emperor there was God. And uh, it was a tough battlefront, but they raised their kids in Japan, one of them being Peggy. And before World War II, as they began to see the ever-increasing opposition towards Western thought and Western people, the Mission Society asked the Covells to leave Japan. They sent their kids back to school in the United States, and they went to the Philippines. While they were in the Philippines, Japan uh, actually did enter the war and took over the Philippines and took, uh, falsely accused the Covells of uh, betraying them and beheaded them. So Peggy Covell's parents, while she was in the United States during World War II, were beheaded because of the Japanese. Her parents had given their life to reach the Japanese, hadn't had necessarily maybe a ministry that was tremendously fruitful, but they gave everything they knew to give. They invested maybe what we could call it was a little thing. None of you have ever even heard of them until I bring up their names right now. And yet they invested in their daughter, what the burden that they had. And they always told their daughter, it doesn't matter what is taking place in your life. It doesn't matter what men do to you. Your job is to show them Jesus and to forgive them. And so Peggy, back in the United States, could you imagine being a young girl 
and dealing with the emotions of this. Your parents gave up their life to reach that people for the gospel, and that very people killed them. Could you imagine being a young Christian? And in the meantime, you have the war going on. Pearl Harbor is bombed, December 7th, 1941. And you have an animosity. It'd probably be very difficult to be an American and not begin to have a resentment and a hatred begin to build up in you towards this wicked people. And yet Peggy, in the midst of this, living somewhere in Colorado, Utah, I'm not exactly sure what school she was going to. I couldn't figure that out. But she chose, she made a deliberate decision in the midst of this atmosphere to say, I know what my parents would have done before they were killed. They would have forgiven the Japanese and they would have loved them. And therefore, I am going to choose to forgive them and to love them. And so her way of doing this and showing this was to go to an internment camp where the Japanese prisoners of war were being held on the Utah-Colorado border. And she just served them. And ironically, she spoke Japanese. And so she had a unique opportunity to reach Japanese uh, soldiers that probably most people in America just would not have. And she spent whatever period of time that was, whether it was a year or more, serving these uh, soldiers day in and day out. And there was a complication that arose because of this because the Japanese have certain philosophies that demand for you to hate and to seek revenge upon your enemies, especially those that kill your parents. They had no grid for what was taking place in front of them, and as a result, they were struggling with the realities that they lived by and the philosophies that they held because this woman came in every day and loved them. And they knew that their people had killed her parents. They didn't have a grid for this. So Peggy Covell uh, was impacted by Jim and Sharma. It was a little thing. It might not seem like that big of a deal to invest in your children as a big deal. Technically, what Peggy is doing and just going to the local internment camp and serving some Japanese soldiers might not feel like a very big thing either. But she did it, and she loved them. The question asked Peggy Covell, Why do you do this, they asked, and her gentle reply was, Because the Japanese army killed my parents, but the Holy Spirit has washed away my hatred and has replaced it with love. The men could not fathom such love and were haunted by her story even after returning to Japan. The story of Peggy's forgiveness was told over and over. There was one man in that internment camp who was the, uh, the engineer, the flight engineer for a very specific pilot in World War II. That pilot was the one who led the bombings on Pearl Harbor. This man was in the internment camp and he was greatly impacted by Peggy Covell. So he is finally released, and he goes back to Japan at the conclusion of the war. His name, Kazuo Kanagasaki. And who does he run into but the famed, I mean, this man's famous in Japan. He was the one that led the bombing on Pearl Harbor. Of course, we would say one of the most hated men in America, one of the most beloved men in Japan. And Mitsuo Fushido, actually at the time, was irate over the fact that the war crimes that were being uh, the trials that were being done to try and convict the Japanese of how they treated uh, allied troops during the war. He could not believe it. He said any uh, nation would have treated their uh, POWs or their prisoners of war that way. 
I mean, what, how can you treat us this way? This is unjust. And he, was, he decided to look in and do research on how uh, the POWs in America were treated. And in the midst of his research, Kazuo Kanagasaki comes home straight from prison camp. And he says, tell me your story. I want to hear all about your story. And what does he say? There was, uh, there was a girl that came every day and served us. We killed her parents. We beheaded them. And she came and she just loved us every day. Mitsuo Fuchido had no grid for this. And at that same time, he receives a gospel track while getting on a bus. And he recognized that the hatred he had in his life was not the solution, but that whatever this Peggy Covell had, he had to have it. And Japan was changed. This man went all over Japan as an evangelist for the gospel. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese in the midst of this vacuum season where their emperor, who was God to them, actually had to come out public and say, guys, I'm not God, I'm fallible. They had no God. There was a vacuum. And in came Mitsuo Fuchido with the message of love and grace that was handed to him by a girl who was merely the child of Japanese missionaries or missionaries to Japan. It was a small thing that changed a nation. You see, the little things we do, we may crave a big stage because we want to be significant. Jim and Sharma have no idea of the impact of their life. They can't see it, and as a result, what do you think the devil's telling them every day? You're nothing. Just go home. You're not making a difference here in Japan. Japan doesn't want this. They're not listening to you. And then the missionary society says, yeah, you need to leave Japan. But we're called here. You have to go. A war is beginning. And then where do they go? The Philippines. And then they're captured as war criminals. And then beheaded. Could you imagine how futile their life would feel? They gave everything they gave, everything they had to give for Jesus Christ And it looked small. If we were to measure the impact without what I'm telling you now, if we were to measure the impact of the missionary work of Jim and Sharma Covell, we would probably say, and yet, with what you know now, you could say, wow, they changed Japan. That's right. You see, it's the lens with which you wear, how you approach the life in which you live. If you're willing to do small things, God does big things. If you're willing to choose the mustard seed and say, I'll choose the mustard seed. See, most of us don't want to choose the mustard seed. We want to choose something that's bigger, something that will grow fast, that will show itself quickly. It's like, oh, look at the seeds that that guy's planting. What are you, what are you planting? Uh, mustard seeds? Well, those are the least of all seeds. You see, those of us that are attracted to the least of all seeds are going to actually make the biggest impact in the long haul. Jesus speaking. Another parable, he spoke to them. We just heard about the mustard seed. Now what does he bring in? He layers in another one. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. What What does yeast do inside of dough? It causes to expand. This little thing, when, when mixed into the yeast, actually caught, when mixed into the dough, actually causes it to expand. You see, God is showing us 
that even though there is something that looks weak, I mean, one of the obvious parallels in this is that which looks weak. Can you think of anything that looks weaker than Jesus on a cross, naked, covered in blood, dying without defending himself? Excuse me? What was that? Well, that looks weak. And that seed, that corn of wheat is, is thrown into the ground and buried. And then it bursts forth in newness of life. You see, this woman takes a little bit of leaven and hides it in three measures of meal till it is all leavened. And what comes forth is something that the world cannot contain. The craving to do something big. It's a weird thing that we have and we tote around. And I just want you to put your finger on it or allow the Spirit of God to put, put his finger on it in your life. Why? Why do you want to do something big? Now, most of us have our initial reaction to that. For his sake. All right? If this is really for his sake, are you willing to do it his way? Because a lot of times our real answer beneath the surface is because I just want to be appreciated and seen. I guess I want people to look at me and say, well done. We're looking for the well done down here instead of doing it the well-done way in heaven. So the craving to do something big, to do something big, first you need to be willing to do something small. You see, unless we humble ourselves and do the small things, tend to the little people, to the unseen things, the things that don't get the applause, unless we're willing to do that work, we're actually not going to make a big impact on this world for Jesus Christ. So context here, Matthew 25. Jesus again talking, and he describes uh, the kingdom of heaven, once again, the coming judgment, where there will be goats and sheep in front of him. And he's going to separate out the goats to his left, and he's going to separate out the sheep to the right. They look similar on the outside. They even sound similar and yet they're different. And the difference, as is going to be revealed in this, is that the ones on his right, which are known as the sheep, actually tend to the little things. They do the work of the kingdom. They don't despise small things. They don't despise mustard seeds. But they're willing, actually, to go straight to those and say, I choose the mustard seed. I'm willing to do the small thing knowing that this is God's secret to changing the world. So he speaks to the ones on his right, the sheep. This is what's interesting. Most of us don't realize that we're really changing the world when we do little things. And you'll even see it in this story. The sheep have no clue. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When you did it to one of the least, how could I say it for this message? One of the little. When you did it to the little, when you handled the little things well, you did it for me. It was as if it was unto me. And what is the list of little? It's all the things that the world would overlook and say, that's not worth your time. Okay, we have some big things we need to do. You see, this isn't big. Those people can't pay you back. Those people aren't gonna pay your marketing bill. You know, you want advertisement, you want to get attention. This isn't how you do it. And yet, this is how God does it. 
You want to change the world Edward style, Peggy style. This is how it's done. A few personal ripples. I just wonder what Peter Trost would think. If, I, I dug his picture up on Google. He's a realtor, so that's his real estate picture. And I put Peter up there just in case, because I don't know how the SEO side of this search engine optimization would work on his name. He'd be like searching for it one day. What? What am, what am I doing in there? So, Peter. So, I, it's my parents' 25th wedding anniversary. I'm home from college. I'm, I'm a little D.L. Moody-ish prior to Christ, okay? I, I think I'm all fine. I have it all together. I'm fine, okay? I'm going to a Christian college. I'm fine. However, I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was living for myself. My entire agenda on earth was me, 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 me. And I knew it. I knew it. There was something that had happened in my life, at least to prepare me for what is just about to happen. It got, just like D.O. Moody, he's sitting there boxing up boots. It's like he was readied for something to happen. This man, you know, it's awkward. It's hard to come up to an 18-year-old boy. I don't, there's probably a few 18-year-old boys in here, but you guys are intimidating. You know, it's hard to reach someone of that age range nowadays, especially when you're a little older. I'm not old, by the way. Uh, some of you are, but not me. Uh, when you come up to someone, when you're older, you feel disconnected. In fact, the world around us is telling us you're, you don't have any voice with them. When I was in church, I, I came back... Uh, when I was growing up in, in high school, I mean, I need to give some backstory to this. When I was in high school, I did not like going to church. Did not like it. And when I went to church, I was known as one of the Ludi boys. No one knew my name. I was one of the Ludi boys. So Mark and Eric Ludi were the Ludi boys. And so, oh, they're the Ludi boys. Where are the Ludi boys? We're right here. It's like, by the way, my name is Eric. Oh, okay. And no one seemed to ever remember my name. And I didn't really like that. Okay. I was looking for an excuse to get mad at the church. I didn't like it. I wasn't impressed. I saw a little behind the scenes and I felt like there was a little hypocrisy going on. I was not happy. Okay. Let's just say it that way. I believed in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. He was my fire insurance policy. I was going to get into heaven somehow. However, I wasn't, I wasn't living the life. There was one guy, one guy in all of high school in church that knew my name, and his name was Peter. Peter, every Sunday, he would say, well, hi, Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I'd go home and I'd tell my mom, I really like uh, Peter Trost. <laughs> he said, why did I like him? He knew my name. You see, this is a little thing, but when your name is known, you feel known. You feel appreciated, you feel valued. And so out of all the people in my life who had access on that day, in December of 1989, wow, December of 1989, only his dates my parents, it was their 25th wedding anniversary, and he comes up to me, I'm like leaning against the counter, feeling a little awkward because it's all these people that I don't know, and you know, various, you know, you have to be cool when you're 18 too, you know, act like you're not into things, and so I'm leaning against the counter, and it's like a cat, have you ever noticed that? Uh, dogs always give away and they have their tail going, they can't hide it, but cats... I don't notice you. <laughs> and so I was leaning against the counter, and he comes up to me and leans next to me like this. This is what he says. So how are you doing with Jesus Christ? He's maybe the one guy that could ask me that question. And it takes guts 
to do that to an 18-year-old who doesn't really want to be talking about that and who isn't doing very well with Jesus Christ. Uh, all right. Really? Well, I could do better. <laughs> he got me thinking. And I went back to college, and my life was changed. Now, there's a lot of ripple effects. You could talk about my sister praying for years. You could talk about my mom and dad praying for me, investing the gospel into me. I'm not trying to discredit those things. However, this man did a little thing. I could just see what was going on inside him. Go talk to Eric. He doesn't want to talk to me. Go talk to Eric about me. Oh, I've been, I've been in those situations many times where I see those 18-year-olds. And it's like, ah. And yet, you do those little things, and it changed my life. So Peter led to the awakening to Christ in my life. Janet, that's actually my mother-in-law. So funny story. Uh, Leslie is five years younger than me. And so when I first met her, she was 15. That's awkward when you're talking about romance, okay? And so I was 20, she's 15. And something happened which caused me to actually think, you know, because I'd been praying for my wife every night. God had gotten a hold of my life. And I was laying in bed the night before I, I met Leslie, praying for my wife. And there was a picture that came into my mind of a girl leaning against a counter. Here, all these leaning against counter stuff. She had brown hair down to her, her neck. And I felt like God said, this is her. All right. I, I, I'm not Pentecostal, charismatic in the classic sense. What I'm saying to you, it just happened. Okay. And so I was like, whoa, okay. And so the next day I'm watching a Christmas play and this girl walks out on the stage singing, and it was the same girl. So I have this weird thing going on where I'm like, and then I found out afterwards she was 15. I'm like, well, that wasn't God. <laughs> that wasn't God, okay? And so I had completely ruled this out, no way. In fact, I was rebuking Satan over it. Uh, and then it was a, a few months later, I would say, and uh, we're... Our families became very good friends with Leslie's family. They're the Runkles, is, is their name. Leslie went from being Leslie Runkles to Leslie Ludi. Poor thing. Uh, you guys have heard that in Japan, though, Ludi means nerd. So since we're talking about Japan today, you might as well know that piece of information. So when I was told that, I said, well, in America, it means stud. Uh, <laughs> But I, we, were, we had this, di this like dinner engagement. We were praying together. And it was one of those popcorn prayers, you know, like you just sort of pray as, as you're led and everyone else is listening to your prayer. And I really wanted to look spiritual. I'd been to missionary school. I wanted to look spiritual for uh, the Runkles family. And you know that pressure you have? It's like, pray something that really sounds good. And so God was convicting me over that. It's like, why do you want to pray, Eric? Well, for your glory. Really? And so the whole night, he basically muzzled me. He was like, no, no, I don't want you doing anything. I want you heeding me, and you have to trust that I will deal with your reputation. Oh, it was so uncomfortable. So I'm praying that night silently. Everyone else is looking spiritual around the room, and I'm not. And in the process, I have this remembrance to the time when I was praying for my wife, and this picture of Leslie came into my mind. And I felt like God once again said something like, that's her. And I am so uncomfortable with this. Now, she was 16 by that time. Does that, that make any of you feel better? Uh, it didn't make me feel better. I was still equally uncomfortable. I was like, no, 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 no. And I'm like rebuking uh, thoughts. I'm trying to keep my thought life pure. I mean, that's what I'm working on. And this is, that's not going in the right direction. And so 
we get done and, and we're leaving. And Janet, so I'm going to get into her skin, she has a thought, and that is that she's supposed to come up to me and tell me something. Well, this is equally difficult for Janet. And I'm walking out the door, and she goes, Eric? And I go, yeah? I need to say something. And I'm like, okay. She goes, I feel like God just wants you to know that what he said to you tonight was from him. <laughs> and so I was like blank. Uh, and she goes, does that make any sense? I go, well, uh, uh, I'll pray about it. Do <laughs> you imagine God's sense of humor in choosing her to say it to me? You, you don't want to know what I was thinking. But actually, that's part of the beauty of how God knit it together. He actually and sort of planted that seed because I still was in, I, was, I could not fathom this for the longest time. My mom even said, Eric, I think you're going to marry Leslie Runkles. I was like, God's going to have to send an angel down from heaven to speak to me to make that clear. <laughs> However, God in his own amazing way used all these things and brought me back to the remembrance of them to say, see, see, I've been behind this the whole time. Brian, the only picture I could find of the guy, uh, Brian Allison. Brian Allison, uh, just a simple business owner in Michigan, doesn't have any pictures of himself online except for LinkedIn. That's the only picture I could get of this guy. He's uh, quite a unique character in my life. For whatever reason, he cared about my life. I, I didn't write books. I didn't travel and speak. It's interesting because people treat me different when they find out what I do. And I get extra favor. I've seen people shift on a dime when they don't know who I am to when they find out who I am, they treat me different. Brian, I was nothing. I had no position, no influence. I was just a young guy who loved Jesus Christ and he had a burden for me. And when he found out I was getting married to this young girl, He's, he knew that my passion was to be able to take the first year of marriage and be able to focus on building our marriage and our communication with each other. So he said, I'll give you a job. It'll be a half-time job. And so, and I'll give you Thursdays off. And Thursday could just be all day with your spouse. He actually built a job. I have a hunch I only hurt his business in that year. And they're giving my personality in an office only distracts people typically. And yet this man invested in my life. He prayed for me. He didn't hardly ever say anything. He just sort of just went and did his business. Didn't hardly speak. He was a man of action, not of words. And then Leslie and I wrote down in three weeks our love story. We were being asked to speak it all over the place. And Leslie and I were so sick and tired of sharing our love stories. Like, hey, come on, guys. If you, you know, we're just going to write it down. Next person that shares, asks us, we're just going to throw it in their face. Like, Read this. So we wrote it down, but we didn't have any money any money to print this. So Brian says, look, I'm going to pay for it to be printed. I'll figure out a printer for you. We'll print this thing. Brian Allison did a little thing that actually led to that little booklet was set in front of a publisher who gave us a call and says, this needs to go around the world. Let's say I have 26 books. Our book on relationships is one of the top three selling books on relationships ever. Where does it come from? A little thing. A guy that no one probably has ever said thank you to that has been impacted by our books. It's a Jim and Sharma Covell. Sharma Covell. No one knows 
what is behind, the wind behind certain circumstances. However, what I want you to know in my own life, the appreciation I have for those little steps of obedience, those little sacrifices that actually lead to a great impact. The power of personalization. It sounds like uh, the power of positive thinking or something like that. Personalization of the gospel. One of the things we recognize here at Ellerslie is that when I speak to you as a group, it's one thing, but if I come up to you as an individual and I put your name into the very scripture that I'm preaching, you hear it differently. There is something about taking that which is big and making it small that actually makes it more effective. And so we see this all over the place. Like, for instance, the students here, we have a day called the Day of Reckoning. It's a whole day. Sandy's with the, all the girls. I'm with all the guys. And we put names to the truth. And I tell you what, it was just something different about it. And we've recognized that. I've recognized it for years. It was so hard when I, I used to speak to tens of thousands of people. And then I came off the road to build the discipleship training. And for oh, two years, I had about 10 people in my living room that I was speaking to. And the publishing world was just like, what are you doing, Eric? You're killing your career. And yet it was this very movement towards the small things that I feel is one of the most significant steps in my life. So what, here's what I've noticed. I'm going to just go through a quick list. The crowd. When I would travel, and we could have a big crowd out there, and I would always say to Leslie, I'm going to go out and meet people. That was my statement. Now, I'm social. Leslie's more introverted. I, I have an introverted side. I really you know, need to get away from people every now and then, but I actually love to meet people. It's like genuine. I really enjoy meeting people. And so I would go out into the crowd. They'd have no clue who I was, and I would come up to them and go, hi. Hi. My name's Eric. What's your name? Uh, Jim. Hi, Jim. What brings you here? My wife. <laughs> Is this your wife? Uh, yeah. Uh, what's your name? Martha. Martha, thanks for bringing Jim here. Hey, Jim, I think you're going to have a great night, all right? It's great to meet you. And I would go around, and I would meet people. And here's what's interesting. At the end of the message, one of the things I recognized is that those that I personally talked with beforehand, the percentage of them in the response position of saying, Jesus, take my life, was dramatic. Percentage-wise, those that I personally interacted with they responded to the message as if it was tailored for them. Now, I would also, if I could, now some days I was better than others, I'd try and remember names. Like, yeah, I was talking with Jim down here earlier, and Jim would be like, what? what? I mean, he was like on the edge of his seat, because I may mention him again. It's a great way, a great speaking technique, by the way. If you ever meet Jim that doesn't want to be there, use his name in the message. <laughs> the Roses. Leslie and I, uh, used to have a, an event where at the, at the very end, we had 12 roses of remembrance. I don't know if any of you have been around long enough to remember that. And uh, so I would be going through these 12 promises that if you trust God with your love life, these are 12 things that we can guarantee you. And so with each one, Leslie would go into the crowd and prayerfully pick a girl to hand that rose to, and that was her promise. I tell you what, the impact over the years and how many times we have heard from those girls that received a rose. The personalization, it's a small thing, but it took truth and brought it down to the individual level. Something about it. The names. 
So if you hang out with me, you're going to know that I am very passionate about knowing names. It's a quote. I don't know who, it's like one of those anonymous quotes. The favorite word in every language, every person's uh, native language is their name. Now, I think that's a very self-centered way of saying it. However, there is something remotely true about it, and that is when we hear our name from someone, that they recognize who we are, it opens us at a, at a, in a way that very few things can. If someone knows our name, then we trust them more, because obviously they're smart enough to know that, you know, I'm here. And when someone doesn't know our name or misspells our name or mispronounces our name, because there's some tough names that come by us, aren't there? And it actually creates somewhat of a distance between us and them. They don't really know me. They really butchered my name. And yet if you know someone's name, it has an incredible impact upon the development of life. It's a little thing. And yet it's part of how we can love people. Just know their name. Don't overlook the little things. I'm just going to give one story. This came up because on Saturday morning we were talking with some of the His Little Feet uh, advocate team. And it was, how did we meet Mike and Krista? And so I was flashback to quite a few years ago, 10, 11, 12. I still can't remember the exact time. And we had a miscarriage. And when you have a miscarriage, when, for those of you that don't know what a miscarriage is, that's a little baby inside a mother's womb that dies while it's in the womb. It's extremely difficult to walk through. When you're in a public situation like we were, and you've already announced that you were pregnant, now you have to walk through the awkwardness of communicating. And I felt an obligation to my audience to show them strength. I'm going to show them that a man of God can walk right through this. And with my stiff, stiff upper lip philosophy, uh, God had to correct me. Leslie, meanwhile, was nearly overcome and undone by the emotional trauma that she was going through because I didn't help her through it. I was just like, let's move past this, Okay. We'll praise God. We'll thank God in all things. We'll, 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 we'll work through this. And God had to stop me and say, hey, Eric, I'm weeping. I care about that little life. Eric, if you don't cry, who's crying? Eric, you are my body. You're the one that is supposed to animate my emotion, my heartbeat. If you're not being my body, then no one's going to cry for that little baby. And I tell you what, I was thunderstruck with how quickly I had forgotten the little things. You see, I'm I'm thinking big things. I have a big audience out there that needs to see something. Yeah, what they need to see is how I care for the little things. That's what the big audience needs to see. They need to see that I care about the little things. Not that I have a stiff upper lip and can move past little things as if they don't matter. And this began a domino effect in my life where I begin to open up and say, God, I'm, I recognize I am, I've forsaken little things. I've been thinking about big things, and if it's not a big thing, then I, I don't think about it. But I have forgotten little things. But that's where your heart is. God's heart is on little things, not just on big things. I'm not saying he doesn't know about big things. I'm just saying he knows how to bring about big things. 
And that's through little things. He has chosen, if you want to say it this way, the little things to shame the big things. In other words, God works through the little. And if we forget the little, what's happened to us? I recognize a trend in my life, and that is I'm warmed to the little things and then cooled to the little things. All I can say is if you find yourself dull to the little things today, cry out to God that he would warm you afresh to the small things. You know, there's people all around us. I can't tell you. You know, I have four adopted kids. I have the mission field in my own home. And yet I can still grow cool to the fact that this is my opportunity right here. It's like, oh, I'm just a father. No, no, I have the privilege. I mean, all of you would be like, I wish I had little Lillian Reese and Harper and Dub in my home. No, those are mine. These are my precious ones. You see, I want to remember that freshness of saying, oh, if I could have that child and care for that child as my own and show them the love of Jesus. I want the freshness of it every day. If his mercies are new every day, I want to have the freshness of the mercies of a heart of passion for little things every day. Could you imagine how we would live different? The miscarriage was a ripple effect through my life, which led to the adoption of Little Harper, which led to a lot of other things. Led to the adoption of a little guy named Deborah Deuster Dandy Kipling. Led to the adoption of Lillian Reese. Some of the greatest pain in my life has come out of that ripple. And yet, it was the little things, and they have changed me. They have completely altered me when I began to say, God, I will not overlook the little things. Now, you could imagine, here I am giving this message. What do you think God's freshly convicting me of? Overlooking little things. I need this maybe even more than you guys do. I don't want to forget how the kingdom of heaven functions. And he said to him, well done, good servant. What did this servant do? Maybe I could, if I could just block out the latter part of this, uh, this scripture so you can't cheat and look at it. Well done, good servant. He's just about to tell him what this good servant did. What did this good servant do? Because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. See, the kingdom of heaven is based on this. Now, of course, we could talk about minas of gold, talents of silver, talents of gold. It's that which is entrusted. And you have been given little things in your life, and God is saying, no, this is your, this is your practice right here. David was going to lead a nation. He was anointed to do it, and yet God gave him little things. A lion? Of course, that doesn't sound like a very little thing. But it's a little thing compared to Goliath. It's a little thing compared to standing against the Philistine army. Just a lion and just some sheep. And yet how David handled that situation prepared him to do big things. The ripple effect was significant. A lion, a bear, a giant. All the nations that surrounded the land of Canaan, Israel, were pressed back by who? The man who had slain the lion. In other words, he knew the power of his God and what started small grew big and changed the world. A mustard seed. David, the eighth son of Jesse. You see, all of us in here, in a sense, are eighth sons of Jesse. We're little people. 
CNN didn't bring in their news crew today to hear what you had to say about my sermon. Tell me, what, what were you thinking when he said that? You see, all over the place, we have arenas and we have fields and there's news crews surrounding them and they want to know what was in the quarterback's mind when he went back and threw the ball down the field. Who cares? That means nothing. And yet what is taking place inside of us, though it be little and though the world not esteem it, actually will change the world. This is technically what CNN should be interested in, but they do not have the mind of God. We need to. And we can't be duped by the bigness, by the popularity ratings, by what the world says is important. We have to say, this is what God says is important. Uh, I'll take the mustard seed. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take the least of all seeds. That's what I want to plant in my life. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.